So we are going to be in Psalm 27 today from verse 1 to 6. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, I will have the ushers walking down the aisle. Please get one so that we can be in Scripture together. And today the title of the sermon is In the Midst of Waiting. In the Midst of Waiting, so from Psalm 27, verse 1 to 6. I know that title is supposed to get you all hyped up. In the midst of waiting. You should all be happy, excited, jump up. I know I'm creative. Sometimes I surprise myself. <laughs> so Psalm 27 from verse 1 to 6. Let's go. Um, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear or what shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom or what shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my foes and my adversaries, it is they who stumble and fall. Do an army encamps around me, my heart shall not fear. Do war rises against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, this is what I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter on the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon the rock. And now shall my head be lifted up above me around all my enemies. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. So one of the things I want you to sort of hold in mind as we go through this uh, six scriptures today, six verses, is that I want you to hold in mind maybe what is your current season of waiting. Maybe you are longing for something. Maybe you are in a season where you are waiting for something. Or maybe it's a season you've been through before. right? And I also want you to hold in the other hand whatever God might say to you today as we progress through the study. So I want you to be listening to whatever God might have for you and for you to hold those two things and let God speak to your heart. So one of the pretty common doctrines in Christianity is this doctrine of the already but not yet. Right? It is this idea that we are actively participating or partaking of the kingdom of God, but the full fulfillment of that is somewhere in the future. Right? So in essence, we are already in the kingdom but we do not yet see the full fulfillment of that. So let's give some examples. So we are in Christ, but we struggle with sin. Right? We are in Christ, but we still have to face death and sicknesses. Right? All is not well completely now. Right? All is not completely well. Right? Even though our eternity, the not yet, is secure. Right, so you have this tension right, between the already but the not yet. Right? And one of the clearest indications of that tension is the fact that we have to wait. There is a waiting that is incumbent in any area of our lives where there is a gap between our present situation, our present circumstances, and what we long for. Right, so between the already and the not yet, we wait. Right? And, and waiting isn't 
how would I put it? Isn't that thing that sort of gets you going? Like, yeah, I'm going to wait. Yeah, let's wait. Right? It just doesn't. It's just not fun. Now, some form of waiting are pretty trivial. You know, you're waiting in the grocery line, on the expressway, or in the doctor's office. Right? But some forms of waiting are pretty significant. Right? We just heard about foster the bit. Right? So you have children that are waiting in that system, longing for a day where they have a loving family around them, a home, a place they can always return to. The waiting of a single person who hopes God might have marriage in store, but is beginning to despair. The waiting of a childless couple who desperately want to start a family. The waiting of someone who longs to have work, to have a job that is meaningful and significant, but just can't seem to find one. Right, the waiting of a deeply depressed person for a morning where she will wait up, where she will wake up, wanting to leave and not having to deal with suicidal thoughts. They say the waiting of a child who feels awkward and clumsy and longs for a time where in the playground they are selected first. Right? The waiting of just different facets of people that are maybe less privileged, either based on race, gender, color, what have you. People waiting that there will be a day where a person will be judged by the content of their character, not by all those other shallow things. So we wait. Right? The waiting of an elderly senior citizen in a nursing home, alone, seriously ill, just waiting to die. So those are some pretty significant forms of waiting, right? And at every juncture of our life, and I would even postulate through all of our lives, we wait. I don't think there is any one season where we actually don't wait. I think it's always a continuous rolling uh, period we go through. right? And that, that's why I said at the beginning that I do want you to be thinking about where you are right now. Maybe there is something you are longing for. Maybe there is something you are waiting for. Right. Or maybe it's a season that just passed. And I want you to hold that in one hand and be thinking of that as we again go through the scripture. So Lewis Smith says, waiting is our destiny as creatures who cannot by themselves bring about what they hope for. See, we wait in fear for a happy ending we cannot write. We wait for a not yet that feels like a not ever. Waiting is or can be the hardest work of hope. So part of why we do not like waiting is simply the fact that there is a sense of helplessness, right? Because you just can't make that end come to pass, right? And with that sense of helplessness, it comes almost like a sense of hopelessness. It's almost like you see that I really don't have that power to make what I want come to pass. You see that I am really on crutches and I do need help. But very often what we see in scriptures and what we're going to see in this passage is that the way God works involves waiting. And I'll just give an example. If you go to Hebrews 11, right, the chapter on faith, right, the hall of faith, as some call it, look at all of them. They had to wait. And I think in Hebrews 11:39 it talks about how they are still, they waited and they didn't even see the fulfillment of all the promises. That is Christ. Right, so they all had to wait. Abraham. 25 years, right? Joseph had to wait for at least over a decade as a slave before the fulfillment of those dreams, right? Rebecca, Sarah, um, I'm missing someone else. Rachel, 
they all had to wait, right? Struggling with infertility before having kids, right? They all had to wait. And even Jesus, right? Jesus had to wait, what, like 30 years before he could actually begin to speak about what he was sent here to do, right? So there is that season of waiting that it seems like God takes us through. And when you think of that, two questions come up, which is, why do I have to wait? And how do I wait? So I'm going to leave the why question to Nick, right? I always leave the hard questions to Nick. Let Nick deal with that. (laughs) What I want to focus on is how to wait. And then I would actually circle back and talk about two sometimes possible reasons why we wait. So let's jump into it. Actually, before I go on, one of the things I want you to see, though, even with those two questions, is that the answers don't really solve our problems. Right. Even if I knew why I had to wait, it's not going to change the fact that I don't want to wait. What solves our problems is when we see the sufficiency of God. And we can look at Job as an example. Uh, between Job, I think, chapter 3 all the way to chapter 38, he asked a bunch of questions. Right? Some say about 200 questions. I don't know the exact count. Right? But when God would appear and speak, you would notice that God actually never answers his question. Right? God never says, oh, Job, let me tell you why this is so. Actually, God proceeds to question Job. But what God was doing with all of that is to just show Job his sufficiency. And what you see Job respond with is, I'm okay, God. You got me. I'm good. Right? So God never really asks those questions. So I'm just saying that, so that for you to see that at the end of the day, I want you to see the sufficiency of God as we go through these passages. Right? So... So let me quickly read verse 1 to 3, which is where we would say, so the first heading there is the name of the Lord, it's in your bulletin, so I've broken this into five different headings. And before I jump into that, part of what makes waiting so hard is the fear of the unknown. We fear that we might not get what we want, and that makes waiting so difficult and perplexing. Right, so let's jump into this. The Lord is my light and salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom or what shall I be afraid? See, when my enemies assail me to eat up my flesh, my foes and my adversaries, it is they who stumble and fall. See, though an army encamps around me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rises against me, I will still be confident. What I want you to see there is this absolute disregard for danger. Right. In the midst of all that is going on, what you see is almost this calmness in the psalmist. And, and so verse 1 actually covers everything that could possibly make you fear. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Or what shall I be afraid? Right. What he's basically saying is, I have no reason to fear. Right. And then verse 2 and verse 3 basically just gives flesh to verse 1. Right? So verse 2 is saying, even though you might have individual enemies, right? he has individual enemies when his enemies are him, he's not afraid. And then verse 3 goes to the scale of national enemies. When an army encamps around me, when war rises against me, he's still not afraid. What I want you to see there, though, what, would, what should jump out of us is that name, the Lord. That is what undergets the fact that he is not afraid. And it's really, in, in the original language, it's the name Yahweh. Right? It's like the covenantal name of the Lord to his people. You see, that is what would jump out to the people that this was originally written to. That name Yahweh. That is the primary 
active personality in verse 1 to 3. So the name Yahweh is a name that expresses, it expresses sorry, the self-sustaining, eternal, self-sufficient, and self-determinate nature of God. This is the name God revealed to uh, Moses in Exodus 3.15. And what this name points to is it points to the character, the person of God. It points to the limitless power, the graciousness, the goodness, the greatness, the justice, righteousness, love, faithfulness, all of that. And so for David, you can imagine that this name connotes safety and is just at rest. Right, so David is seeing in this name the sufficiency of God. I'm not saying he's still not anxious. I'm not saying the enemies are not there. But what I am saying is by him seeing the sufficiency of God, he's able to walk through the season of waiting and be more at ease and be more at rest in God. And so for us today, the bridge to the name Yahweh is Christ Jesus. Right, He is the express image of God. Right. And so as long as we have Christ, we are connected into that name Yahweh. And so this name should always be the strong tower we run to in the midst of problem, in the midst of issues, in the midst of our waiting. Right. This is our hope. This name is our joy. And so the psalmist starts off by centering our focus on God. Right. By showing us that absolute confidence in God comes from relationship with God. That is what that name Represent the name Yahweh to his people. It's a covenantal name which implies a relationship with God. Like I said, this is not saying you wouldn't face issues. What I'm saying is that a life of a life that is devoid of fear, the type of fear that wakes you up, is possible through confidence in God. It is possible through relationship with God. What the psalmist is expressing in verse one to three. It's possible as we get to know God more. So the point of all of this and all what I'm saying in verse 1 to 3 is that it is necessary for us to bring our minds to dwell on God. Right? Not just one time here and there in the morning, but as a continuous sort of consistent touch point with God. You see, the ultimate freedom we have as human beings is the power to select what our minds will dwell on. And so what I'm asking today, at least from this first three verses, is for you to meditate on God. Let that be a part of your life, especially in those seasons. Right? Continue to behold the face of God, which we will talk about later on. And to know God, though, like how Romans says, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And how would they hear except they accept? And how would anyone be sent except they preach or something like that? But what I'm trying to draw out here is, It is important, the accurate teaching and preaching of the gospel is important because this is how you know about God. This is what helps you dwell on God. This is what helps you set your mind on God. And so in the midst of waiting, one of the most satisfying and empowering things we can do is to actually feast on God. So I have one question for you. When you think of God, what comes to mind? We can do like a word image association. You know, when you think of Nick, you think of pastor. When you think of God, what comes to mind? Do you see God as this boring, cosmic personality that is up there in the sky and sort of looking out at me and looking at everybody and say, ooh, what are you doing? Don't do that. Change that. 
Right? Do you see God as that? Because that's important. It's reflective of your interactions with God. Right? So that, that's a question I want you to think about, and that's something I want you to sort of rest on. Or do you see God as this incredibly joyous being? I mean, look at the universe. Look at the cosmos. Look at yourselves. Look at your gifts. Can a boring God really create that? Can an uncaring God really create that? And this is what, what I want you to be thinking about. What comes to mind when you honestly think about God? So pretty much what I want to recap here is what gives us confidence in the days of trouble is resting in the sufficiency of God. But for us to rest in the sufficiency of God, we have to know the name of the Lord. In essence, we have to know God. There has to be that interaction, touch point with God. Now, knowing God, I will postulate, naturally leads to desire for God. So knowing God, I believe, naturally leads to desire for God. So in the midst of imminent danger, and against this backdrop of confidence that we see that the psalmist has, for uh, this confidence that the psalmist has in God, what you would expect is for him to cry out to God to save him. Right? He has enemies that are trying to assail him. Like there is an army that is encamped around him, and then there is war that is rising against him. But let's read verse 4. So in the midst of, again, danger, and we've established he has confidence in God. One thing have I asked of the Lord, which you would think, please save me, God. Right? This is what I seek after, which is, God, please, kill my enemies. But here's what he says. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. See, so rather than cry out for this salvation, what we see is this longing desire for God. What we see in the psalmist is that he actually, rather than being looking for a way out, he's turning his face to God and longing for God. See, this is his one thing. This is what is primary to him. This is what is at the very top of his priorities. God. See, it isn't financial security or the job or health or safety or marriage, even though all those things are good and important. The primary thing to him is God. And that phrase to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, it's more about the presence of God. Right? It's more about, again, having that relationship with God. So he disregards the threats of enemies breathing down his neck. And he seeks God, not for safety. So, for example, he isn't running to the temple and saying, oh, God, save me. My enemies are here. Right? Not for safety, but to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And to inquire in his temple. So it, it's almost as if the psalmist here has a blank check. You have this utmost confidence in God. There are enemies coming to, to attack you. You have a blank check and it's almost like God is asking you, what do you want? And rather than say, God, deal with my enemies. Give me long life. Give me prosperity. What he's saying is, God, give me you. I want you. Because I know in having you, everything else will be taken care of. Maybe not exactly in the way that I wanted to go. Maybe not with the urgency that I wanted. But when I have you, 
I have everything. So the question I have to ask again, and the question I ask myself, which sadly I'm not a good poster child for this, is what is my one thing? What am I longing after? Especially when I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. And maybe even especially when everything else is fine. What is my one thing? Right? What am I running after? So if you are like me, if you're like me, what you see is that this, at least for me, this desire for God is not the normal note of my life. Right? I don't have that. How would I put it? I don't have that um, genesis quality of thirsting after God. I just don't. Right? It's like a battle to push and to long, especially when things are going well. <laughs> right? Like, you know, I'm the type of person where if I see a problem coming, I want to think about strategy. How do we deal with this issue? Right? So if I don't have a job, I'm not thinking about gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. I am thinking about gazing at that hundred applications. Like I want a job. I'm not like I'm not saying don't you know don't uh, search for jobs or do applications. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying I just completely focus on the job. Like how do I get the job, as opposed to that reliance on God. And a lot of times it's almost like an afterthought. After I've sort of run around like a chicken without his head, and then I come back like, okay, God, <laughs> what do we do, right? And, and what I'm trying to say is the reason I run around and I don't run first to God. It's because of my lack of faith in God. Like I can say all the right things. And I can speak all the right words. But if in the midst of my trouble, I don't run to God, it is emblematic of my lack of faith in the sufficiency of God. So if you want to know the extent to which you truly trust God, look at your actions. But look at it lovingly. And I stress lovingly because most of the time you wouldn't like what you see. Right? But if you want to see how much you trust God, look at your actions objectively. Reflect on them. And you will pretty much know what is your one thing. Whether God truly is at the top of that one thing. So what we've talked about so far is how confidence in God comes from knowing God. Right? And I believe that the more you know God, the more it leads to deeper desire for God. Where God becomes your one thing. And every other thing is subsumed under the sufficiency of God. Because when you have God, you have everything. So the next question naturally becomes, how do I become the type of person where my one thing is God? Where in the midst of that chaos and the trouble, as much as I deal with different things and as much as I try to solve the problems, God is still my one thing. God is still at the very top of my priority. And we've talked about this already. You see, in verses 1 to 3, the active personality is God. right? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom or what shall I be afraid? God is the active personality. The disregard for the individual enemies and the national enemies, it's because of God. In verse 4, though, the active personality is the psalmist. David, me and you. Right? This is our this is our part in this equation. Now I want to be clear. We are not working for salvation. Whatever I'm going to say next about what you what you should do, it's not about earning salvation. It's not about showing, oh, I'm a good Christian or earning some cool brownie points with God. Not at all. We are not earning salvation. Right? 
While it is God who walks in you both to will and to walk for his good pleasure, you are called to walk out your salvation. Have you noticed in scriptures that a lot of times the onus is put on you with certain commands? Like Aaron, do not be afraid. Peter, be strong and courageous. Right? The onus is put on you. Right? And what I'm saying, for example, you know, Nick, deny yourself and pick up your cross. Right? The onus is on you. What I'm trying to show is there is a dimension of our relationship with God where we have to own certain things. And I, again, I'm not trying to say we simply do it by our own willpower and we greet our teeth and we do it. What I'm trying to say is there is a part of this relationship with God that God will not do for you because of his love for you. Right, so, for example, take a mom. Right? For every mom here, I'm sure at some point, you're teaching your kids to brush their teeth and you're feeding them food. But at some point, in love, you want them to be able to do that themselves. Right? You want them to grow and be able to do that. Like, no, I don't want to do that for you. All right, learn how to do that. <laughs> like, pick up the spoon, <laughs> open your mouth. <laughs> right? You teach. And so, like every loving mother, like God, there are just certain things God will not do for you. He would nudge you. He will provide the resources. He will speak to your heart. But God is not going to sit down and force your hand to open the Bible. He's not. Now, he would walk in you to that end. He will walk in you to have that will. But he's not going to do certain things to you. And the reason I'm stressing all of this is if you look at verse 4, there are certain active verbs there that I want to point out. Right? Seek after. Dwell. Gaze. Inquire. That is on all of us. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to seek after the Lord, to dwell in his presence all the days of my life. That is all on us. And what I want to draw from that verse are two key points. One is there has to be a consistency to our relationship with God. There has to be a consistency to our gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. Right? Because when there is a consistency... Right? Even in the midst of trouble, you are more at ease because you already have certain interactions, touch points with God. Let me use an analogy. When all of you came in here today, and as you're all sitting down on the chair, I'm sure you didn't test the chair. Like, oh, is this chair good enough for me to sit? You just sat down. The reason you sat down, right, and let me backtrack. Your sitting down actually shows faith in the chair. The chair can uphold me. So you sat down. You didn't even think about it. Now, to have that faith in the chair, you've had multiple interactions with a chair. From when you were a baby, you've seen a chair, you've seen different people sit on a chair, you sat on a chair. You just had multiple interactions with a chair. And so now you don't even think. It's the same way with driving a car. At some point you couldn't drive a car. But over time, practice, you know, touch points with the car. After a while, you're just so comfortable. Now you can drive a car, talking to someone else, doing whatever. Right? It's the same thing with God. Right? For you to have that faith in God, there has to be those interactions. Faith isn't something you just summoned up. It's a gift from God. It comes through your interactions with God. The more you know of God's past faithfulness, the more you are assured of his current and future faithfulness because you know his character through the multiple or continuous or consistent, I should say, interactions with God.
So in our relationship with God, there has to be a consistency. There is no other way. Right, so this isn't simply, you know, I have out five minutes on Monday and then that's it, I'm done. And then up until the next week, right? I'm not talking about that. Right? There just has to be a consistency. Right? This is our part to own. The second thing I want to point out is there has to be this active thirsting for God. Right? So you see in multiple places in scripture, I think it's Deuteronomy 29, maybe 14, Jeremiah 29, I think 13. Excuse me. It goes, it says something to this extent, I'm paraphrasing, that when you seek after God with all of your heart, you will find God. Right? When you thirst after God, when there is an active thirsting, you will find God. This doesn't mean you have to empty all your resources and pray for 24 hours. That's not what it's saying. It's saying when there is a, an honest, consistent thirst for God, he will show up. He will speak to you. So one of my favorite authors um, ask this question that I personally don't like. And the question is this. Are you planning for growth? My answer is no. (laughs) Because it's not something I'm thinking about. And then he will follow up with this question. So you are not planning to grow? (laughs) But it's an important question. Just as we plan for everything else. Are you planning for growth in God? Now, again, this isn't like, oh, I'm going to do these five things, and then in two months I'm going to be a super apostle. Not at all. What I'm just saying is, what is the cadence of your life? Woven into your life, is there a consistency of beholding the face of God? Do you maybe at least attempt to engage God? And that's all we can do. Start small. Right? Stats, mom. I'm not trying to guilt trip you. I just want to call your attention to the importance of gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. Stats, mom. Do one thing. One. And do it consistently. Do anything that opens your heart to God. Anything that in your experience draws you closer to God. Do that one thing. Do it consistently. Pick a time if that works for you. Pick a venue. If that works. And show up. Don't worry about the agenda. Don't worry about, oh, I don't know what I'm going to talk about with God. Don't worry. Just show up. Right? If God can create the entire universe, he can handle 10 to 15 minutes of your time without an agenda. Just show up. Right? Don't come up with this elaborate, oh, I'm going to do five things, which is normally what I would try to do. Oh, I'm going to do all these five things, pray in the morning, pray at 12, pray at 3, pray at 6, which I don't do anything. <laughs> Just pick one thing and show up. Whatever it is, right? Just, just pick one time and do it often. Do it often. So some practices, and we've talked about this, praying, right? Just talk. It doesn't have to be structured. You don't need to first say in Jesus' name. You don't need to talk like Nick. Just talk. God, what's up? I'm tired. Just talk. Just pour out your heart. Right? Read the scriptures. Certain things might jump up. Fast. As a way of, when I say fast, what I mean is as a way of longing after God. Like, God, I want to carve out this time to just sit with you. Take walks in nature, if that's your thing. 
Go, take a walk, a hike. Just be with God and talk, unburden your heart. Sometimes this is the hard one for me. Sit down in silence and just be there. God, I'm here. He might not say anything. He might say something. But the important thing is you are there and he is there. And he is loving on you. Sometimes he's doing things you don't even have any clue about. But be there. Right, so just pick any practice that works for you. Listen to scripture if that works for you. Music if that works for you. But be there. Be present. Don't just do it as a checklist. Be truly there. Right, if you have to turn off your phone, turn off your phone. If you need to find a chair in your house or your apartment and that is your place, do it. Like whatever works for you, right? Pick a time, venue, if that works. Sometimes I know timing might be hard. Have a rhythm. Sometimes your rhythm might be on the weekend where you do certain things on the weekend. Maybe you turn off your phone for the first half of the day. Maybe, right? Maybe it's monthly. Maybe it's quarterly. You take a retreat. Plan a day with Jesus, (laughs) right? Take a retreat. Go somewhere. Take a vacation. Something. Do something, have some rhythm to your life, right? Have certain things in your life that help centers you on God. So we wait, the, the, the answer to the question at the beginning that I asked, so one of it is why do we wait? The second is how do we wait? The answer to the question how do we wait is we wait by gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. How do we gaze upon the beauty of the Lord? We pick one of these practices. And we do it and we show up, right? So when you show up again, don't think you have to make something happen. God is running the show. You just show up. And so that, that is my encouragement today, that this is how we wait. We wait by beholding the face of God. So even as you wait, you might ask the question, so where is all of this leading? What does this mean? Okay, let's say I do these things and I wait. What does this mean? What this means is when you will get to see the sovereign hand of God more and more in your life. Because as you pay attention, as you slow down, as you are reflective, which is another thing you could do. You could do a reflection of your day at the end of your day and just see where you interacted with God, where maybe you didn't, maybe where your emotions were positive and negative and just sort of see maybe where God was and all of that. right? But as you slow down, what you begin to see is the sovereign hand of God in your life. And what you begin to understand is God will get you through whatever you're facing. He will. Like we know how it all ends. Revelation 21, 22. We know. He will get you through anything you're facing. Right. So let let me quickly read verse 5 to 6. Right. Because what we see here is it's like a victory lap. It's the anticipation of victory. This is where we are going. This is always the end. We know. This is how we will end. So verse 5. For he will hide me in the shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now shall my head be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Like I said, this is our end. But what I want you to see, as we said in verse 1 to 3, the active personality is God. Verse 4, the active personality is us, the psalmist, us. Verse 5 to 6, the active personality, as the 6a, is God. He will hide me in his shelter. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. 
the active personality is God. That is the sovereign hand of God. It isn't David doing anything himself. It's God. Right. And, and so what I'm saying here is, if God will foreknew you before the foundations of the heavens and the earth, and has secured your eternity, right, to the deposit of the Holy Spirit, trust him in the here and now. If you can trust God to save you from eternal damnation, trust him in the here and now. And again, what, what I want you to see, what I hope you will see as we go through this, as you sort of settle down and slow down and be with God, is the sovereign hands of God. So I want to quickly read an article to you. In the article, How Involved is God in the Details of Your Life, author John Bloom gives a close-up on the life of Joseph and titles it Sightings of the Sovereignty of God. What he wants to show is the unnerving, unnerving level of God's providential involvement in the life of Joseph. What I want you to see as we're going through this is, is if God is that involved in the life of Joseph, he is involved in your life. So I'm going to read a couple of things. So that you can see how God is involved in the life of Joseph. I'm not saying God necessarily did all these things. I am saying he made use of these things and he walked it into his plans. So Joseph's place in the patriarchal birth order was part of God's plan. Rachel struggling with infertility. God used that as part of his plan. So Jacob's romantic preference of Rachel. right, That led to his favoritism to Joseph and Benjamin. Part of God's plan. Right. Joseph's brother's evil, murderous, greedy betrayal of him. Part of God's plan. Joseph's extraordinary administrative gifts in Potiphar's house. Part of God's plan. Potiphar's wife being given over to sexual immorality. Part of God's plan. Potiphar's wife's dishonesty. Right. The accusation of Joseph. Part of God's plan for Joseph to go to that particular prison where he would later meet the cupbearer and the baker. Part of God's plan for the cupbearer and the baker to lose favor with, uh, with Pharaoh and be thrown into that prison. Part of God's plan for Joseph to have favor from the warden. Part of God's plan. Right. For those for the cupbearer and the baker to be able to trust Joseph enough to share their dreams. Part of God's plan, right? For, for the cupbearer, I believe it was a cupbearer, to forget about Joseph for two years after he was released. Part of God's plan. We obviously know God gave Pharaoh the dream, but for Pharaoh to be desperate enough. Now think of this. You're Pharaoh. You're sort of the most powerful man in the world. You have a dream. Your counselors can't interpret the dream. And then a cupbearer tells you, oh yeah, there's this Hebrew guy in some slave, in some dungeon that can interpret your dream. For Pharaoh to be willing to listen to that and say, bring Joseph to me. Part of God's plan. Right? For whatever happened that led this, you know, complex phenomenon, natural phenomenon that led to the idea of the seven years of just bountiful harvest. And then followed by seven years of just lean harvest. Part of God's plan. Right? For everything to be consolidated in Egypt where Joseph was so that his brothers will come there. Part of God's plan. Right? For Joseph in power, when he was in power, to not completely just kill all his brothers. 
part of God's plan. Because you have to know that must have hurt. For your whole youth to be spent as a slave must have hurt. Right? And when he had power for him not to just completely crush them, part of God's plan. So what I'm trying to say here is God's involvement in Joseph's life is not unique to Joseph. God is also involved in your life. So the past faithfulness of God to Joseph guarantees his current faithfulness to you and his future faithfulness to you. Why? Because we know God doesn't change. Right. So even as you go through this season of waiting and you're gazing upon the beauty of the Lord, be confident in the fact that God is there with you. He will make things right. Maybe not exactly how you want it to go, but he will make it right. Right. As you as you sit with God, as you have that consistent touch point with him, you will come to understand his nature more, his character, and you will come to be able to rest in his sufficiency. Right? Because in the sufficiency of God, you gain that which you can never lose. You gain God. Because the gift that God always gives is himself. He gives himself and in himself you find everything else. This is why the psalmist will say in the presence of God there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Everything is in God. Now I promised you that I would come back to this idea of why do we wait? And I'm going to give two possible reasons why we wait. So um, I think last Sunday I was teaching the youth on uh, Genesis, I think it was 22. Abraham's uh, Abraham's sacrifice in Isaac. And we brought up this question as well, right? Why would God ask Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, right? And the answer is the same answer here. The reason we wait, the reason our faith gets tested, because that is what that waiting period is, is to show us our own dependence on God. It's to show us how much we need God. You see, it strips away everything else we have confidence in and it sort of reorients us back to God. That is one of the primary reasons why God, in his love, take us through a waiting period or a waiting season. The second reason why we wait, I think, possible reason, I'm sure there are other reasons as well, is that it brings about a necessary dying to self. When I say dying to self, what I mean is an abandonment of your desires to God. It goes in line with that reorienting you back to God. It is finding that satisfaction and that fulfillment in God. And the reason why that is important is our desires, what we long for by nature, even the good ones, by nature, it's simply after what it wants, right? I desire or I long for what I want. Essentially, you can capture it as this. I want what I want when I want it. That's really our desire in a nutshell, even for the good things. Right. But God, by nature, is after what is good for you. And so often those two things would not align. Or at least they would not align at the particular time you want them to align. This is why it is necessary to abandon your desires to God. But when I say abandon, it is abandoning it in faith to God, seeing his sufficiency and his plentitude. It isn't a trade where you simply just abandon it and that's it. No, it's a trade where you always come out on top. Right? That's the point of abandoning your desires to God. Because no matter what you wait for, what you're longing for, whether it's marriage, a job, 
the longing over a child, whatever it may be. When you get that, you will still long after something else. It's not the end. Right? It keeps going. Right? It's just sort of like that mountaintop, you know, the peak and then back to the valley. Like we're always like that, right? And this is why, you know, I, I think it was Augustine that said something to the extent that um, I'm looking for that quote. Like we are made for you and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Something like that. Right? And that's the idea. We wait on God. God is our focus. We find our sufficiency in God. Amen. Amen.